1: Hey everybody welcome back to another episode of the flow line we're coming in hot and heavy for 2023 matt how you doing this beautiful day
0: i mean i'm doing well the weather doesn't look like it's doing very well
1: outside but i'm doing great how are you justin oh, i'm doing well aside from my hand that blew up over uh new year's eve there i was trying to light a sparkler and proceeded to burn the living daylights out of my hand. Yeah, it was one of those, you know, I've lit in a thousand sparklers in my time, but this one decided to jump out at me and burnt uh, kind of half of the inside of my hand. But yeah, daddy looks like an absolute warrior now running around with just a hand that looks completely demolished. My kids were freaking out asking if I needed (laughs) band-aids all day yesterday. And I was like, no, I'm tough. It's okay. And so my and daughter, they're all traumatized. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They think it's like, oh, dad's hand's about to fall off. And mm. Yeah. All is good. Well, 2023, man. I mean, are you excited? I mean, i fired up. I think it's shaping up to be a good year, man.
0: I mean, I'm excited. There's a lot to be excited about. There's a lot to be overwhelmed because I feel like 2022 closed very intense, which normally doesn't happen. Yeah. I mean, I the last couple of weeks of the year, I was still seeing people traveling for work and that. Yeah, that's just sort of unheard of. So maybe that bodes well for an exciting new year. I did get some rest, Good. but man, yeah, blowing and going already.
1: Good. There's lots of exciting things to look forward to, both on the drilling fluids front and drilling activity. It looks like we're going to be held up pretty strong here for the year. And you know, again, we're going to continue to pump out good podcast episodes. Just when you think there's nothing else to talk about, boom, there's something else that comes up, whether from a listener or a customer that has a challenge that we've helped solve, you know, and just never a dull moment in the podcasting space. And then for today, Matt, what are we going to talk about today?
0: Well, we're talking about drilling surface, right? Fun fact, if you can't think of an episode idea, just aggressively walk up to coworkers and be like, what are we going to do a podcast on today? Right. And they'll be like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. um, but th- this time around, we were just talking about some challenges drilling surface. To me, I guess the thing is drilling surface is so often overlooked. Like, yeah, it's a very quick, intense period of time for the mud engineer. yeah, it's not necessarily very technically complex, but it's intense. Happens, and you certainly don't want to be talking about problems like this. Is the one we're supposed to not worry about? We're focused on intermediate and and production, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. Because really, it's a cost, right? It's not a revenue-generating interval.
0: No, there's not a lot of oil at surface, right? And if there was, you probably have a problem.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it sets you up for success to have a good well. You know, I wouldn't say it's like a foundation of a house. It's important to have surface set in the correct spot so you can drill the next interval it's important to get a good cement job it's good to god forbid something happens on surface and then you have to skid over redrill it well then your whole well plan changes so it's one of those that you know we drill them and they're often overlooked because you can drill them in eight hours 12 hours and you know within 24 hours you've drilled it cemented it, and skidded to the next one at certain times depending where you're drilling but it can certainly cause a bunch of headache a bunch of time bunch of equipment. Yeah. It's just kind of blow and go. And again, it's kind of overlooked, but it's important to talk about because there's some on the mud side, there's some things that come up that we need to be prepared for. And ultimately just like, you know, any interval for that matter, mud can either make you or break you. And today we're going to talk about all the above.
0: Yeah. I think foundation is a good description just by way of, I mean, if you don't have isolation here, you're not going to get isolation anyway, right? All, all your other casing strings, there's a good chance a channel will find its way all the way up. And, you know, you're trying to protect the water table. You're trying to get set that foundation so that everything else can go well. Yeah. And like you said, if it fails, you got to move over. And it's like a domino thing because now you got to redo everything. Yeah. Even though it seems like a minor change. So I guess with that drilling surface, I mean, you mentioned, look, we can knock these things out in, in eight or 10 hours sometimes, but surface interval in West Texas, what are your typical surface interval lengths?
1: And what kind of rig are you using to do this? Yeah, well, that's a good question, right? I mean, so typically it could be anywhere from six, seven hundred feet down to twenty-five hundred feet, depending if they deep set. You know, you're drilling. I wouldn't say you're drilling quite as much, say gumbo and clay, as you would down in South Texas. But it can attack you in many different ways. Typically, you're going to drill with a spud mud. You know, a bunch of soap and sap, and you know, some clay and nothing real fancy. Some LCM, and you know, depending if you get deep enough, you may throw in some to help run casing. You may throw in some fluid loss reducers to help build some wall cake. But for the most part, I think a lot of times what folks run into is some major losses. But kind of going back to your question there too, is, you know, you automatically think, oh, you drill it with your big rig and then you keep going. But the way now that we've set up pads and drilling schedules, a lot of times they'll have a sputter rig that will essentially spud each well and then move on and spud the next pad. And so the big rig can come along and just knock out intermediate and production. So it just depends on the operator and kind of their business model and perhaps rig availability and scheduling. But you can either have a sputter rig, knock them all out, or you can come in with your big rig and you can either batch drill them. And it's funny because I've been on both sides. I've been on with operators that drill with sputter rigs and big rigs for intermediate and production. Whereas sometimes they'll come in And you'll think they'll batch drill, surface, 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 intermediate, 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 but they may drill the wells fully one after the other. So it really just depends. Again, I'm not on that side of the fence. I don't know the rhyme or reasons, but as a mud company, it's like, as long as we know the schedule, we'll adapt accordingly. Right. But it keeps life exciting when you
0: can't predict it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. You're always on your toes. But I mean, batch drilling is nice because you kind of have your system in place. You don't have to do a bunch of fluids management. And it's, you know, once you're done with the last one, then you can just essentially dump it or ship it off or, you know, depending on what the operator wants to do with the fluid. But for the most part, it's just kind of some cheap water-based mud. and
0: It's cheap, but I think, you know, the execution is such a challenge sometimes. Yeah. So you'd already mentioned, all right, we're, you know, a spud mud. So basically gel and water. Maybe with some goodies or just some sticks, you know, some polymer sticks that you pump down the pipe every stand or you know whatever. So fairly basic, and it has to be part of that is environmental if you're drilling through the water table or what have you, and part of it is these formations are just so goopy anyways. Mm-hmm. You're not going to spend a bunch of money trying to inhibit everything per se. But I guess from a mud maintenance perspective, you're drilling really fast it's a larger hole size relative to the others. Mm-hmm. What would you say on the like maintenance side of things are some things you're trying to stay on top of while you're drilling really, really fast? You've got a relatively cheap mud system, but a lot of it's about mixing. A lot of it's about staying on top of stuff. What
1: are the sore spots for you? Yeah, I think hole cleaning is a big one. I mean, it's always important, but again, fortunately with pump rates that we're able to pump, that helps eliminate a lot of the hole cleaning issues. But it's still, I mean, if you're drilling... As fast as that rig can drill, you're gonna be pumping hole cleaning sweeps. And so I would say between hole cleaning and lost returns is some of the biggest pain points that come across. Again, it's very area specific, but those are the two that off the top of my head are just extremely important. And but and then we've got you know different systems to sort of combat some of these. And Matt, you know, beyond the just the typical say gel, water, soap, caustic, whatever the case, again, very just a basic gel chem spud mud. What are some other sort of I mean more complex systems that you've come across or that we have in the toolbox to combat against any of these issues that I'm talking about? I think the first thing
0: that comes to mind would just be to treat up your mud system a little bit more. So yeah, your base is gel, but you know, maybe at some point you turn it into a little bit more of a mud and so you cut back a little bit on the gel and add actually add pHPA to the system. Those are just basic sort of the inhibition mechanisms, a little bit of flocculation, you know, the slop type stuff to get you through the pain points. But probably keeping in mind that all this stuff has to be fairly benign, the other one that comes to mind, especially when you're confronting losses and major losses, would be something like, our system's called EnerSeal, but a mixed metal oxide, mixed metal hydroxide type system, where we've talked about that in the past, where it's a highly thixotropic fluid. So when it's static, it gets real thick. And when it invades some of these permeable formations or poorly consolidated material that you have on surface, I mean, keep in mind, there's not a lot of rock sitting on top of rock, right? So your formations are a lot weaker than deeper down. They can't handle the pressures as much. They're a lot softer generally. Hence, you know, some of the clay reactivity. And so something like an inner seal could enter some of those permeable zones. And when it gets static, it gets a little thicker. And if you complementing that with lost circulation material it might help you maintain some returns. And that is really important to get the cement job that you're looking for. But a lot of other systems, you know, have some limitations with respect to viability. For example, let's say you want to go really light and try and drill with a direct emulsion. Well, I don't know if you get permission. I'm no environmental person qualifier. But like, if you're using diesel as the non-continuous phase, you're probably not going to be allowed to drill through a water table using that. Right. So some of those things, you're kind of limited. You may have to choose a synthetic oil or something that's more benign, or you may not get permission to do it at all. So you're looking at generally clay-based muds, and I think the other aspect of it is you want to stay – once again, if you have reactive formations, you may actually want to keep your pH closer to neutral so you don't bust out a lot of those clays, which would happen – with a mud system that needs products running at a pH above nine.
1: Yeah. No. And again, a lot of times, again, depending on the area, you can allow it to sort of mud up naturally because of just the natural clay that you're drilling. A lot of times you don't have to like build a system. You can essentially just spud with water and let it mud up naturally. You know, it doesn't take a huge bag of products with specific concentrations to build it to a certain spec. It's in a lot of it too, is just because you're drilling so fast. It's you know, hole cleaning is a big one. And the reason for that is obviously to clean the hole, but you don't want to load up your system or your annulus with cuttings or debris because what that can do is it can increase your ECD, mm. thus blowing the bottom out. And if you're already in an area that's conducive for losses, you want to maintain your density as low as possible. So you're probably dumping a bunch. Of, and if you've got a reserve pit, that helps quite a bit keep the density down. But the biggest thing is hole cleaning, keep the mud weight down. And hopefully, you've got some pretty good conditions to run casing. And if you have to spot something on whether it's like a kind of like a high gel sort of slick pill or lower the fluid loss, that's really as exotic as it would get unless you have to, you know, again, so like talking about some of the challenges, if you all of a sudden, whether you knock the bottom out or you just drill into a fracture, sometimes you will lose complete returns and operators will like to dry drill or Mm -hmm. drill blind, as they say, or sometimes it's just sort of SOP to start pumping cement. Like if you know you're just going to drill and you're going to run into these caverns. Some operators have found that it's just a lot more advantageous to stop drilling right then and there, pull up, set a plug, and then keep drilling because the offsets show that they've tried pumping who knows what down hole, and it's not attainable. It sucks, but you sometimes have to be quite reactive because you just never really know when you go through, when you start sputting a well, what it's going to do 30, 40, 50, 100, 50, 200 feet down. And you just sometimes don't know. Yeah. And I mean, time
0: is money and this is the thing that we're supposed to get through so we can get to the stuff that produces the oil, right? Yeah. I left out, you know, the other kind of treatments, like even you can add some starch to tighten up the fluid loss. There's a few other things we do. I don't think it's a good point. Like we rely pretty heavily on gel for hole cleaning and a little bit of filtration. We can tighten it up a little bit, especially sometimes we'll start throwing that stuff in sort of towards the end if there's some permeable streaks. Yeah. But you are kind of working with formation that you get. And that being said, we mentioned some of the reactivity. Do you encounter much on kind of the bit balling or you know that sort of thing and what are your favorite go-tos to kind of mitigate that because you're trying to drill as fast as you can, right? And the problem is the formation's weak enough that you can drill as fast, right? Like you can almost push the BHA down. Yeah. But like you said, you get all these cuttings back there and then you also have the risk of this stuff wanting to stick to everything.
1: So tell me about what you do for that. Yeah, so the biggest one, and people right away would start adding products or mentioning products, but for me, it's water. First and foremost, you got to stay hydrated because if you start getting dehydrated, then it doesn't matter what you add, you can, that can compound the problem. So I would say water first and foremost, and then just the good old tried and true soap, sap, and some nut plug or walnut shells, depending on how heavy the clays are coming in at, at a pretty decent concentration. And then regularly, they're relatively inexpensive. And the key is just staying ahead of it. Pre-treating it, making sure that stuff doesn't adhere to the BHA, because once it starts, it's easy for it to just keep packing on, packing on, packing on. And then once you get to a point where either a, you just can't drill anymore because you're just basically a ball of clay down there, and you're turning to the right, but you're not going down. If you can spend a little money to get ahead of it, which most operators, I mean, almost all now understand that. But you know, perfect example is you know we were drilling for an operator in an area that was very conducive to bit balling, lots of gumbo, and they went from the Permian into this region and in the Permian you don't typically see a lot of the same problems on surface as you do in other areas. And so, you know, there was question as well, why are you adding so much of XYZ and, you know, I've never seen this on surface before and so finally, you know, once we started pulling up some recaps and then we were able to show, which big shout out to the AES analytics team, we were able to get them an answer in like 30 seconds, but pulled up an average over time of how much of products we were using to mitigate bitballing and gumbo attacks and then we realized like, oh, okay, yeah, that that's actually within average. And now we know. And we were able to give them an answer, keep adding what we were adding. But but again, it was very different from one area to the next. And the reason we were adding so much right on the first day, it was thousands of dollars worth of this product. I was like, why are you adding so much out of the gate? And then come to realize like, oh, if you don't, then you're going to end up spending more time, maybe not necessarily more product, but you're going to spend more time, which ultimately results in more cost for the entire well. So Again, getting in front of it is the biggest key in my yeah. opinion. I mean, that's the thing
0: is it just seems like it's this huge sprint out of the gate, right? Like I think because it's quote unquote pretty easy and you're expected to be successful. I think I mentioned this in another episode, but talking to my dad about fishing hands, and he said, you know, way back in the day the fishing hand was this miracle worker when they could catch the fish and get your BHA out of the hole. And nowadays you come out there and if you can't get it, you're a failure and they'll never work with you again, you know. It's like but now it's like no, we really expect success. That is the standard, which good, we've advanced. Right. But you can't forget what got you there. And a lot of that requires a lot of energy from people to stay on top of these things before they become big problems. And clay wants to stick to everything including itself if you give it something to stick to and then you can't get it off and it just wants to stick to, you know, the clay that stuck to the BHA for example you're gonna have more and more and more and more and you're in a bind. The frustrating thing is we don't have any like, I don't know frustrating is the right word, but like there's no fancy tech that immediately makes this easier. <laughs> what it is, is it's a good mud engineer staying on top of their business. And I think it's just not appreciated enough because we expect them to do this every time and they should be able to,
1: right? We have the tools, mm-hmm. but you gotta use them. Yeah, and last point I wanna make is, especially if you're drilling, it's not only hectic on just like, the drilling rig and the hands and the mud engineer from logistics and operational standpoint, but the amount of paperwork that's required, especially if you're going from well to well to well, we actually have an operator in an area that we're drilling surface. We'll work a night hand and a day hand just during surface holes. It sounds funny. It's like, why would you need two hands on surface? But if you're drilling four or five surface holes and a mud engineer's up for 72 hours they're not making real great judgment calls. And then, on top of that, from a safety perspective, safety it's a challenge, right? Yeah. And so, the operator representatives on site are mindful to make sure that our folks get some rest. Because a lot of times, and remember for the folks listening, a lot of times a mud engineer is the only one out there who's working by himself. Most people work 12 and 12. And the mud engineer, which it's just kind of I laugh and chuckle because as a mud engineer, I was like, why am I the only one working 24 hours a day out here? This doesn't make sense. Whether that'll change in time, I don't know. But it was nice to at least get the operator to encourage us to bring out another hand because the mud engineer, by the end of it, he had paperwork up to his eyeballs and you know, his head was spinning. and Yeah,
0: well, I mean, the paperwork thing, it's a bit of a crazy situation to make sure, you know, these products get charged off on this well versus this well, and it's expected that you isolate these things. You don't get to say, yeah. here's your six-well batch bill. Right. That's not how the costs are tracked. And so it's like even just that administrative aspect, forget the part of making sure that responding to, you know, whether the hole's being cleaned, making sure the sweep is mixed. You're drilling faster. Guess what that means? less time between connections. Everything you're trying to make plans around that involve the rig crew, they're basically tied up. And so they're a circus and batch drilling just makes it exponentially more challenging, which thankfully, I mean, having help out there when you're doing a lot of them and that sort of thing has
1: got to be a huge help. Yeah, no, it's been great. So, but beyond that, Matt, you know, it's quick, it's relatively easy, but it can cause some pain points. And yeah, that's pretty much it, man. I don't have anything else to add. What do you got? You know, you've mentioned a few times just the study of offsets,
0: right? Like, I mean, this is one of those where there's a lot of places where you'd say, look, you go on the other side of the highway and you have no idea, you know, and and we'll talk about losses and, you know, you drill a well 10 feet next to another one and totally different scenarios. But I think surface hole, you know, knowing your offsets, understanding what you might expect in the area, and then also being ready to expect the unexpected because there are those stories of, you know, 20 feet over seeing something very different. And the oil field's full of mysteries. I don't know what to tell you, but it happens. It's Matt, you finish this off here. Service is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get.
1: And with that said, everyone, thanks for listening. I hope you have a wonderful 2023. We're off to a great start. If you want to share this episode, we'd absolutely appreciate it. Continue to like, review, and subscribe. And yeah, hit us up on LinkedIn. Matt and I are on there, active. Follow the AES Drilling Fluids page. Our marketing team and, and everyone continues to add a lot of good educational information out there for everyone to learn and to keep up with all the amazing things that we're doing here at AES. If you want to just send us an email with a question, it's the Podcast at aesfluids.com. And remember, be safe, everyone. Take care. Take care. Bye. Later.
0: Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flowline. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.